You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Before we start, I want to thank all of the We Are Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L-plus.com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jakey Dell, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode. Uh, it is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians. We'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you. And now let's get started with our show. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me here on the program. My name is Chris Spangle, and today we are going to be talking a little bit about cash bail. This is something that has popped up around the nation as, uh, you know, the election that we just went through, issues of crime and law and order are starting to pop up, and uh, a lot of cities are starting to crack down on um, certain organizations like the one that I'm talking to today. It is the Bail Project which is an organization that helps people who are of lower income get cash bail. So we're going to be talking to David Gaspar, who is the National Director of Operations at The Bail Project. Uh, And let's meet David now. David, thank you so much for joining me here on the program. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate the opportunity. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at The Bail Project. Uh, So I actually have a background in warehousing. Uh, So... I've been volunteering in the community for several years now, and my wife and I had an agreement that when our youngest children turned 18, uh, that I would be able to pursue a career in doing charitable work uh, in our communities. And the bail project just happened to be uh, available at the moment that I was making that transition. Yeah, because I, I looked at your LinkedIn earlier and you had like kind of a different career path. It didn't start at, you know, maybe the School of Philanthropy. So I was kind of curious how you ended up. Uh, so what makes this a passion for you? Um, you know, I, I grew up in an environment where poverty was a normality. Um, so I didn't feel like I was poor. It was just part of the environment that I grew up in. Um, but as you progress in life, you start to see that that's not what's real. Um, you know, that's not the only reality, I should say. And so over time, I just knew that I had a passion for giving back and for helping people. Um, started with at-risk youth. And then as I had the opportunity to incorporate that work into my employment in the warehouse, 35% of my team was system impacted. Um, and I would say that probably 60% of my management team were system impacted as well. So just seeing how when you give people an opportunity, they can actually take advantage of that and advance their lives. So explain system impacted. Can you kind of unpack that for those who may never have heard that term? Yeah, so system impacted is somebody who's had contact with the criminal, criminal legal system. So either they've been arrested, served some time in jail, or even potentially have moved on to the Department of Corrections. 
Okay. So tell me about the bail project. Uh, first, I think we need to explain what cash bail is, and then we'll dive into a little bit about cash bail uh, after you tell us about the bail project. But f- explain cash bail and what that means to those who may not know. All right. Um, yeah, definitely to, to, to ground this conversation, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, so to start off, our criminal legal system, and I do emphasize the word ours, um, it's yours, it's mine, it's every American's, it's our criminal legal system, and it's based on a very basic principle, and that is that everyone, each and every one of us are entitled to the presumption of innocence unless proven otherwise. Now, cash bail and how that plays a role, cash bail is actually creating a problem. Cash bail is the practice of requiring somebody to pay money up front for their freedom or to remain in jail indefinitely until they get their day in court. Now, the reason why cash bail creates a problem is because it has created a two-tier system of justice, a system for those who have means, that have resources, that actually have the money to be able to secure their freedom, and then a tier of justice for those who do not. And really what we're looking to accomplish as the bail project is to level that playing field, to reestablish that constitutional right that each and every one of us are entitled to. And we do that by paying the cash bail on behalf of individuals who are in a position of need, those who lack the means, don't have the resources or the the connections to those resources to be able to secure their freedom. And so by us helping, uh, by intervening and helping individuals secure their freedom, we are reestablishing that level playing field. And we also, after post-release, will provide supports as well. Yeah, I liked the, uh, the tagline on your website, for the bail project, freedom should be free. Um, I I have never been arrested. I don't know what it's like to go through, you know, the the criminal justice system. I have no idea what what bail entails. I don't know if I got arrested, what I would do at that point, or or. And I've thought about that, like how would I come up with the money for bail, right? So I'm always trying to put myself in other people's shoes. Um, can can you talk about the process of, you know, are you arrested and then you get assigned bail? Or for anybody who's just sort of ignorant of the process, can you kind of walk me through what the average person that you work with that is involved in the bail projects might go through? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, somebody finds themselves engaging law enforcement, they're taken into custody. Upon their arrest, they will be taken to the county jail. And within 20 20- Four to 48 hours, they'll find themselves standing before a judge um, for a bail hearing. It's within that bail hearing that a judge has three options in front of them. They can either remand somebody to custody, meaning just keep them incarcerated in the county jail, or they can release somebody on their own recognizance, meaning they can, you know, freely be let go from the jail with no conditions of release. Or they can release somebody with the condition of bond. Um, And that's where cash bail comes into place. That means that the judge has made the determination that this individual is eligible for release, but there may be some concern that they might not return back to court as assigned, and therefore they want to be able to have some assurance that this person will return to court. So those are the three options before a judge. Now, most people believe that this hearing process is one as we see it on TV or one that we understand and believe and expect you know, from our constitutional protections of due process and, you know, the rights to face our accusers and to be able 
for to stand before a judge and have a bond that will not impose harm upon us. We believe in these principles, but that's not actually what's playing out in our courts across America. What's happening is within a 60 second, normally 60 second process, a judge is making that determination based off of what is just simply sitting in front of them on their their stand. Did you say 60 second? Yes. The, it it so goes, it's most, that quick. It's that quick. You stand before that judge and the determination can be made as quickly as 60 seconds. Um, and that's really unfortunate. What we would hope for and what we believe is happening as Americans and what the bail project is trying to establish is to have a real process of review. Have an expectation that our prosecuting attorneys are going to enter that courtroom with facts, with evidence that shows that this individual actually poses a threat either to an individual, to our community, that there are flight risk, allow for an adversarial process of a public defender to be able to defend against those allegations. But most important, allow the judge the ability to have facts and evidence sit before them that they can take into consideration, they can evaluate, and they can make a determination, does this person pose a real and imminent threat to a person or to our community? Or does this person pose a real, genuine flight risk? And based on that, then the judge makes the determination, should this person be remanded to custody? Should this person be released? And no longer allow cash to be a determining factor if somebody gets out. So we falsely rely on cash as a public safety measure. But if I had a million dollars in my bank account and I go kill somebody and the judge gives me a $500,000 bond, I can be out tonight. It doesn't make me any less guilty or any more innocent. All it means is that I had enough money in my bank account for me to come home and eat breakfast and dinner with my family. All right. So let me put this in another way and kind of repeat back to you what you just said. So I fully understand because I'm never surprised when I find out that the government doesn't work the way that we were taught in civics class. Um, but is is the process essentially that, look, we're, we're just going to – it's like a conveyor belt. I mean, how did we get to a point that you have 60 seconds of a judge determining your, your cash bail status – so just that there's so many people to process and the judge is just trying to get so many people cleared off of the docket. And that's why it's so quick. Um, and why do you think that things would change if we took cash bail off the table? Because we're essentially being lazy. I, I, I think we, we've allowed ourselves in, the, in our criminal legal system to find easy ways to make difficult decisions. We're talking about human beings. We're talking about very specific facts to each and every case that a judge is going to have presented to them. When we're talking about the conveyor system, we're talking about an over-reliance on pretrial assessments. We're talking about an over-reliance on or, or, or a, a misplaced you know, um, belief that cash money makes us safe. Uh, we're over-relying or placing our trust and our faith in processes that are just not proven to have the results that we would expect or hope that they would. And so when we're talking about, you know, is this laziness, is this a conveyor system, is this, it really is how can we just genuinely find like the root cause of what is contributing to our society or societal problems. 
And so what we know about our jail population is that the majority of individuals in pretrial custody are facing some type of mental health distress. They're facing some type of substance use disorder. They're facing some type of poverty. And jail has never been proven to help anybody, you know, find mental wellness. They have never been found to be a treatment for substance use disorders. And I think all of us can agree that sitting in jail in a position of poverty is not going to change that condition. So when we're looking at the root causes and how we're assessing and assigning bail, really what we want to look at is, first of all, who is standing in the front of those judges? How is the judge being presented information? And is this actually contributing to what we would all hope it would? And that is to not an over-reliance on pretrial incarceration and not just a blind release of individuals. Okay, I, I agree that we're over-criminalizing and over-jailing people. Um, how big is the problem? I mean, how, I mean, when America has more people locked up than any other, uh, first world country, obviously the problem is big, but you're, you're, you're working with folks, you know, pre and post, um, being a part of the system. So give me, a, a just a snapshot of the size and scope of how over jailed we are. Yep. So on any given night, any given day, over 80% of our jail population throughout America is sitting pretrial, meaning these are individuals that have only had an allegation placed against them, but they have not been found guilty. And they are sitting in our jails day in and day out. That is just a daily average. At the end of you know, what we look at as far as the impact, within 72 hours, somebody can lose their employment. Three days, no call, no show, no job. What we know is in that same time period, if somebody has custody over their children, those children can be removed from the household. And they. we know after a week to two weeks, somebody might not be able to pay their rent anymore. We know that they might lose their car because they can't make their car payment. We understand that lives unravel with each and every passing day that somebody sits in our county jails. So the problem isn't just about somebody being incarcerated and not being able to get home. It is about what is being sacrificed during that period and what is the harm that these people are being subjected to as their lives are unfolding right before their eyes, as they're losing everything day by day and not having a clear path for how they're going to regain or to be able to reclaim the lives that they once had. So the problem is on a larger scope, over 80%, we're talking 2.5 million people annually are sitting in our jails pretrial. And that is a large number. And you know, to your point, if you know incarcerating people actually resulted in public safety, we'd be one of the safest nations in the world. It's a really good point. Um, the IU Public Policy Institute did a paper on the bail project in Marion County, Indiana, um, where you, you and I both reside. Uh, just a couple of stats that I think are important to kind of highlight here. Um, the organization pays an average bail amount of $2,125. Uh, I, I guess I wouldn't know what bail costs, but so that average, I mean, what we see on Law & Order, for instance, is usually for your $500,000. What does bail generally range? I mean, is that, I know that's the average, but... Can you give us some other concept of the cost of bail, be it through a bails bondsman or, you know, through private relief like your your organization? 
Yeah. Um, so speaking to Indianapolis where this report was done, um, we've seen bails as low as $100. Um, we've seen bails as large as, you know, a million, million plus. Um, when you, you know, you cited our average, our average is $2,000. The people that we're helping are those people who are in the lower rung of being able to have resources available to support the release. Um, these are individuals that are, you know, either at the poverty line or below the poverty line. Bail, however, you got the for-profit industry. They can cover those bonds up to the million dollars, the 500,000, the 150. So there are a range of people being released day in and day out. Um, but the individuals that we help are those who are in a position of need and lack the, the means and the resources. And I think it's really good to note when we're talking about bond amounts. It, it's important to note that the average American doesn't even have $500 in their savings. The average American doesn't even have five. So this, the, the 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 below average, you know, Americans that that we're serving, they have far less than that, if anything, in their savings accounts. And now you're talking about somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck, bill to bill, cycle to cycle, and they definitely don't have the money to afford, um, you know, an unexpected occurrence. Like and that. I think you may you raise a great point. You're waiting on your pre-trial bail sentencing. You're you're there for what three days, five days. And then that puts your job at risk. And then you're hoping what somebody else is helping you try to raise that money. If you don't have the money, I mean, that is, that is a large hardship. Yeah. And it's one that many families across America try to carry. Um, but you know, when we think about the family unit, we think about the individual that doesn't have the means and how they're calling upon their mothers, their sisters, their brothers, their uncles, their cousins. Well, now you're putting those other households deeper into a hole of debt. You're, you're, you're like now broadening the impact in a negative way across a whole family unit. Yeah, that's something that we've talked with um, Rupert from Rupert's Kids about. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the overall cost of being incarcerated or even accused of a crime, and let's say you get convicted and you've got 175 for your ankle monitor and you've got court fees and you've got – so then, you know – what does somebody who has a hard time getting a job opportunity do? They they turn to other means to try that raise raise that money, and it leads to more recidivism. And so, this sounds like it's just raising the overall cost on some of the most vulnerable people. Which I guess let me let me ask that because I I hear that and I see I hear wow vulnerable people. Other people hear well these are criminals. Why are you mm -hmm. being a soft hearted wimp, Spangle? I mean. Uh, the, the, if you've committed a crime, David, you should have to pay something because you're a flight risk or you've you've been accused of something. How do we know that you're going to actually return? We've got all these folks who come to America, claim amnesty, and then never show up for the court date. Wouldn't that just happen en masse if we took away cash bail? Yeah, great question. Uh, so, you know, our initial effort as an organization was to disprove the argument that money is what brings people back. And what we found in all of the bails that we've done throughout America is that people will come back. Uh, we have over a 90% success rate of people coming back to their court dates consistently all the way through. And so when we're talking about an individual and, you know, how we want to classify them, if we're being soft-hearted, the one thing that's important to remember is that bail doesn't short circuit the court process. There are still going to be hearings. There's still going to be an expectation for an individual to show up. 
And what we've been able to prove is that those individuals will show up. There is a majority, there's a, there's ants in our numbers that proves that the majority of people simply just need help getting out of jail. That when they're out of jail, they're going to go back to their lives. They're going to return to homes, their families, their places of employment. They're wanting to put this episode of their life behind them. They want to be able to move forward. And the only way that they can do that is to bring closure to that. And that's why they return to court. They want to be able to have closure and they want to be able to move on and to be able to have a life. Yeah, because it doesn't stop the fact that you have to go to court. I mean, they will come and arrest you if you don't show up for court. Um, Absolutely. All right. So 90% success rate. I know the Indy Star at one point reported um, the bail project saying its clients have returned to 95% of court appearances. But, you know, here in Indiana, you, you operate all across the country in Louisville, St. Louis, you know, Indianapolis, uh, across the country since 2007. But what about that 5% or 10% that uh, gets out? You've helped them get released. You know, there was an incident here um, where there was a 20-year-old man accused of stabbing two Indianapolis police officers. That really led to a lot of consternation here in Indiana. There was House Bill 1300, which made it a crime. Governor Holcomb signed it, made it a crime for a nonprofit to pay people's bail because of that particular incident and a few others. I mean, what do you say to the critics who say crime is going up in people's perceptions anyways, and we've got to be a little bit tougher on crime and we've got to stop letting our foot off the gas and you're aiding criminals and people like the man who stabbed two police officers. Why should you be allowed to engage in this work? Yeah, but I would first answer that by saying that there's no direct correlation between bail and a rise in crime. There's no evidence that people out on bail are dominating in a way that is contributing to rises in crime in any of the cities across America. I would also highlight with that particular case, you have an individual that had a mental breakdown. This is somebody who had just recently left the hospital that was documented, he needed help, and a tragic event occurred as a result of that. We know that human behavior is not always going to be 100% predictable. However, we also know that our numbers have proven that this is the outlier. This isn't the norm. This isn't something that we can say, out of all the cases that we did specifically in Indianapolis, out of almost 8,000 people that able to bail out, there's a couple of examples of where something that was uncontrollable, something that was actually, you know, unforeseen. And I do want to point out that this is something that wasn't just uncontrollable or unforeseen from a bail project perspective. This was also an individual who once again stood before a judge and had the judge make a determination that this person was fit for release that this individual was going to be able to go home and to be able to advance and move forward. The judge, ourselves, a for-profit bail industry or anybody else would have never been able to predict that this individual would have had the mental breakdown that they had. So why did the bail project get the blame? And why did uh, the nonprofit bail folks get outlawed, but the for-profits didn't? Because I, I fundamentally, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, if the bail project bails me out or the cash bond across from the city county building bails me out, what's the difference between you two? Why would 
Why did they pass a, a law if the problem is cash bail? Why pick and choose who can and can't participate? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and, and just to kind of broaden that a little bit, you know, to check that out. When we're talking about cash bail, cash bail can be paid by anybody. It could be paid by a charitable bail fund. It could be paid by a family member, a loved one, a friend, an employer, a coworker. It could be paid by your local church. It can be paid by a bail bond agency. So really, we're we're talking about you know why so much attention on a charitable bail fund. I can't answer that question. Uh, you know, I, I would have to you know redirect that towards the individuals who place the highlight and the focus on us. What I can say is that it misses the point. The point is we should be talking about cash bail as a whole, talking about cash bail as a process. We should be talking about not who's paying it, but why does it exist in the first place? What purpose was it intended to serve? And if it's not serving that purpose, why does it exist at all? And in its absence, the bail project proposes that a stronger system be instituted across our judicial bench a process that requires public defenders and prosecuting attorneys to come to that court space with evidence, with an actual set of facts that the judge can consider and then make a real determination if a person poses a threat or a risk to a specific person or to a community, or if this person poses a specific flight risk. Without facts, without evidence, without having a hearing that can then be evaluated and, and, and considered when that judge is making that determination, we're gonna to continue to fall back on blaming the cash bail results, the cash bail symptoms as being leading factors when in fact it's cash bail itself that needs to be repealed in a process of evaluation of facts and, and, and determination based on those facts is the proper way forward. So I know that you've appealed that in Indiana and that the bail project and I think the ACLU have helped fund a lawsuit to try and overturn that here in Indiana. Where does that stand? Um, to be honest, that is something that is handled by our, our legal division, and I do not um, engage in that. So Totally understand. So I, I think before we go, we really have to highlight something that was very stark in that IU Public Policy Institute paper, and that is uh, just the the uh, the over impact in communities of color. One snapshot the Indi the Indi, Indi Star wrote. Marion County Jail data obtained by the Indy Star shows that nearly 60% of the jail population is black, while the county's black population is closer to 29%. Uh, talk about how the cash bail system hurts uh, communities of color, specifically black the black community. Yeah, um, and I really appreciate you raising that. Um, what we know is that some of our most impoverished communities in Indianapolis are in black neighborhoods, black communities. Um, and we also know that those communities for the most part are heavily policed. And so when individuals are constantly having, you know, interactions with law enforcement, there's a higher likelihood that somebody would be arrested and in need of bail support. Um, but they don't always have the funds. They don't always have the means. And once again, as stated before, their families and family units don't always have the means either. Um, and so those are the individuals that, once again, that are being placed in custody. 
the harms of keeping somebody in custody, once again, keeping them away from their ability to be employed, keeping them away from the ability to maintain housing, keeping them away from the ability to actually remain a, a steady and positive contributing factor to their family unit only continues to deteriorate that individual's life as well as those that they, they are responsible for. So let's start talking about moving away from the cash bail system. What do you propose and what are some solutions to offsetting this? Yeah, uh, great question. So uh, if you looked at our website, you know one thing stands true. We are more than happy to put ourselves out of business. We are more than happy not to be needed or not to have to serve any of the communities. Um, but what we're proposing is an end to cash bail because cash bail is not about justice. It's not about safety. It is about the size of your bank account. You are guilty until proven wealthy. That is how our criminal legal system is working today. What we're proposing is that a system of facts and evidence be reviewed by a court and that a determination of if somebody should remain in jail or should be released is based on that on those facts and the evidence that have been presented. We don't want to just say people should just blindly be, you know, um, provided you know, freedom. No, we understand that this is a process that needs to be evaluated, but let's evaluate facts and evidence and not rely heavily on risk assessments and pretrial assessments. All right, shameless self-promotion time. Where can people find out more about the bail project and uh, get involved if they'd like? Yeah, so uh, they can go to bailproject.org, our website online. They'll be able to connect with us there or to be able to reach out to any of our local sites. All right, David Gaspar, thank you so much for joining me. He is the National Director of Operations at The Bail Project, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you, listener, for joining us today. If you learned something, please share it. That is the best way to help support any podcast, and we truly appreciate your time. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.